welcome once again to Yukon 360, to episode 29 of Yukon 360. That is the only podcast in the entire galaxy that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. My name is Tom Breen. I'm your moderator of sorts. Joining me, as always, my colleagues Julie Bartuka. Hello. Ken Best. I almost was taking a cookie from the cafeteria because we had cake last time, but I thought that wouldn't be a good idea. No more eating on the no podcast, more eating on please. The no. No. We didn't hear a lot of complaints about the eating last time, but we didn't hear a lot of praise either, so <laughs> probably just best to avoid that. We've got a terrific program for you today, very excited about it, and we're going to jump right in with both feet in true Yukon style uh, with some Husky headlines. Ken, what's the news? Well, the big news this week is by the time this is on, we would expect that our women's basketball team will be in the Albany region of the NCAAs because they won their sixth straight American Athletic Conference title uh, last week, uh, Nafisa Collier, who we talked to for our podcast several weeks ago. Friend of the podcast. Uh, <laughs> scored 85 points, setting wow. a record during the tournament. She was the MVP of the tournament. In her quiet way, she just goes out and pulls down rebounds and scores and uh, stops people from scoring. But we also have our women's basketball team at Avery Point involved in the junior college national tournament. We don't know what exactly has happened yet because they're still playing, but this is the second year in a row they've gone to the national championship, just like the baseball team has been doing for many years. Go Pointers. Yes, this is the second year in a row they've won their conference tournament. So They deserve more attention. Whether at Avery Point or stores, UConn women's basketball winning ways. And also the men's track and field team, second year in a row, they won the IC 4A championship trophy. They brought it back to stores. That's the annual indoor track championship. And a number of the guys set personal records and best records. Outdoor season is about to begin this week as we're speaking in Jacksonville, Florida. So go to the Huskies website and follow the adventures of the track and field team. Both the men and the women have championship athletes. All right. Sweet. Julie, what kind of news do you have for us? I got a cool program that just started. UConn's Institute for Brain and Cognitive Sciences, which is also known as IBEX, has partnered with Connecticut-based Child Care Center Educational Play Care to offer a new fellowship to graduate students who recently had a child, an award that's intended to make it easier for new parents to return to research. And this is really important because because studies have shown nearly half of women scientists leave full-time research after having their first child, and about 50% of the women who leave cite family-related reasons for doing so. And although men leave at lower rates than women after the birth of their first child, about the same percentage of men scientists also cite family reasons for leaving academia. So we want to keep them here, and this fellowship is open to any graduate student that's affiliated with IBEX who has had or is expecting a child in the calendar year of the fellowship that they receive. Educational play care, which has locations all over the state will award 10 weeks of free daycare currently valued at $3,200, which can be used at its downtown stores location. So very convenient to these parents. And then IBAX will match that award with another $3,200 that can be used for a further 10 weeks there or any other daycare of the students choosing. And this fellowship will be awarded to up to two students per year. And IBAX is now accepting applications. You can find the details for how to apply at ibax.ucon.edu. Very nice. As for me, I have some news from the Dodd Center. Uh, which every two years awards the Dodd Human Rights Prize. Oh, yeah, big deal. This year's recipient is the Equal Justice Initiative out of Alabama and its founder, Brian Stevenson. This is a a group that was founded in 1989 to address racial and economic inequalities in the criminal justice system and in society at large. They do a lot of great work both in in terms of litigation and also in terms of historical memory. Like they just opened a museum in Alabama and they do a project where they travel around and erect monuments and signs commemorating the sites of lynchings in U.S. history. Brian Stevenson is a very impressive attorney. He's argued successfully in front of the 
the U.S. Supreme Court and in other venues. And they've won a lot of cases for people who've been wrongfully imprisoned and wrongfully put on death row. So they will be here first week of November to accept their $100,000 prize and a bust of Senator Tom Dodd. <laughs> Which everybody wants. And they'll be programming around the uh, ceremony. We'll have more details on that uh, as the year goes on, but congratulations to the Equal Justice Initiative. That's definitely the kind of thing that the prize was intended for. That's one of my favorite things we do at UConn. It's very neat. I have a footnote to the Dot Center. Okay. We just this week concluded a symposium on the International Tribunal trial of Ratko Mladic, known as the Butcher of Bosnia, unfortunately. Many of the primary figures on the prosecution team and actually a witness and some scholars on that subject were here at UConn, uh, including Predrak Dosinovich, who's a researcher, did a lot of work on the research for the trial. He was involved there for many years. He's here at UConn teaching, and I spoke with him, and then in a future podcast, we're going to hear from him. Very nice. Uh, and of course, Tom Dodd, speaking of war crimes, Tom Dodd was a U.S. senator, but uh, famously was a prosecutor at Nuremberg after World War II. Well, so on that really light... <laughs> Fun note, talking about some war crimes. Why don't we jump into this week's stories? Julie, what have you got for us? Not war crimes well, good. at all. Good. Totally opposite end of the spectrum. You may have heard that UConn held its first ever social media day on March 13th, which was last week as you're hearing this, featuring a full afternoon of informative sessions for students and faculty and staff on how to make the most of social media and build their personal brands. The day included lunch with an influencer, which was Sarah Merrill, who's behind the Instagram account Big Kid Problems, and talks from all kinds of impressive faculty and students and alums who have found success on social media. The keynote speaker for the day was alumni Dan Dan Orlovsky, who is, as many of you should know, a former UConn football quarterback and NFL pro who used social media to set himself apart and land a gig as an ESPN analyst. I caught up with him briefly before his talk. Did you ever think you'd be back at UConn to talk about social media? <laughs> no, I actually <laughs> thought about that to myself today because when I was in school, like, it was AOL Instant Messenger was the form of electronic communication, right. if you want to call that. And even up until, I mean, this is March of 2019, even up until like September of 2017, I did really not mess with social media. I actually thought social media was stupid. And then kind of my uh, world got flipped upside down with some of the stuff that I experienced in, in, in using Instagram and Twitter and really Twitter now. But I had many visions of me coming back to UConn. None of them involved social media. It's <laughs> pretty funny. So you're talking about Twitter and Instagram and how you got into that. Wondering your thoughts on how you kind of set yourself apart in that world where, you know, sports social media has a million people being an armchair quarterback and putting their opinions out there, not always so well informed. How did you rise above the noise that's out there? Oh, I think the reality of having 12 years in the NFL attached to my name certainly helps. helps. And then at the end of the day, I don't, I don't necessarily try to do too much opinion stuff. I try to do like evidence and education. I don't, I never, I don't want to say never. I very rarely use the words I think. Anyone can do that. Anyone can sit there and go, well, I think this. I'm going to give you my opinion and support it with evidence. I like to try to educate people more than prove that I'm smarter than everybody type thing. And so I, I, I'm of the belief that if I can get people to understand football a little bit more, appreciate football a little bit more and kind of fall in love with it the way I do and, and even get people that did not grow up 
playing it or watching it that much, but see it from a mathematical angle mm-hmm. or a picture puzzle or you know putting pieces together type thing. That's the way I try to utilize it. I've used it as a weapon in a way and kind of that's been my focus on it. I also believe that at the end, content is king. The great thing about the internet, the downside of it is everybody has a voice and they could say whatever they want to you. And the good side of it is you'll get exposed if you don't know what you're talking about. And the truest time saying that the cream will rise, that stands as well on the internet. The people that know what they're talking about and are good at it, they kind of rise. And the people that just blah, 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 people get tired of it. They're part of the chatter, yeah. Yeah. We were talking a few minutes about how to build engagement. Do you have some key takeaways you can share with us? Well, I, I would say the big thing, at least in my experience, is engagement. You know, like, yeah, I mean, I was fortunate that some people high up at ESPN educated me on this was I don't ever interact with someone who kind of takes shots at me or take, you know, just wants to be super negative. If you want to disagree with me and have a conversation, then I'm going to engage with you. If you want to compliment or be nice and I'll engage with you. So I believe the engagement part of it is a big deal. The more that I can show people that I'm just a pretty normal person that just kind of excels in something that they're super interested in is a big deal. The timing of it is a big deal. You know, I've I've gone to Twitter and, and posted something that I thought was super dope at three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> and the next day I'll look at it and be like, huh, this didn't get much traction. And then I'll post something at six o'clock in the morning that I think is super cool and it'll get a hundred thousand views. And so the the timing of the engagement, I, you know, I really believe is a big deal. And then it's a fine line between because I, I see a lot of people on social media and it's almost like they will drown you with stuff. And I can go anywhere to get drowned by right. with stuff. So I try to pick and choose times where I'm you know active, times when I'm not. Sometimes I hold back stuff and go, you know what, right now is not the time for me to post this because people are tired of hearing from me, tired of hearing me talk about this. So it can't be an overwhelming amount of engagement, but I, I think that the simplest thing is the engagement aspect of it and people appreciating that. I have some UConn questions, obviously. Yeah. Do you have a favorite memory of your time here at UConn? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, so many, but I would say that the, the one that stands out the most is probably the first time running out of Rensselaer Stadium. Uh, which is now Pratt and Whitney. Mm-hmm. But that was the moment where, you know, when I came here, it was unpopular. And a lot of people, the majority of people are like, you're stupid. That's crazy. You'll ne- you guys will never do it. And walking out into that stadium and playing against Indiana and playing the way that we did, like the initial wave of like, ah, this is this is the dream that all the time and effort and sacrifice and work that was put into to prove everybody wrong in a way, I'm here. And then probably the bowl game, it would be right up there. You know, I know you asked me for one, but the bowl game, because that was the, I told you we could. And um, that was the, you know, a lot of time as an athlete, you spend by yourself and you have to prove yourself to yourself. I'm a believer in that. And a lot of questions along there. I almost transferred as a freshman. Wow. And so um, that was in that moment of, I made a decision years ago to come here and everyone thought it was crazy, including close family members and friends. And I did what they told me I couldn't. I, we did what people told us we couldn't mm-hmm. do because you can't take that away as an athlete, as a competitor, as a person that has a lot of pride and, you know, borderline ego. Like that is something people can't take from you. Do you have a favorite place on the store's campus? <laughs> campus has changed a lot. It has. It <laughs> from, has. from when I was here. Uh, I still think like the energy around Gamble is pretty neat. You know, I was here, I was fortunate to be here 
during some basketball heydays as well. And so the the energy around Gamble is pretty cool. Where the new basketball facility is is where our old football field was. Right. And at that old football field were a lot of our workouts. And so, you know, just kind of seeing that building initially will take my mind back to so many late night, early morning workouts where I know it's kind of cliche to say, but like we, we cut our teeth in a way and, and again, proved ourselves to, to ourselves and our teammates and worked and earned the things that we accomplished. But I'd say the energy around the athletic, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sports person, right. obviously. So the energy around the athletic areas. Favorite dairy bar flavor. Mm. I'm a very plain palate person. Uh, mint chocolate chip for sure. <laughs> That's my favorite too. And do you have a favorite all-time UConn athlete? Oh, man. My favorites here. For uh, I, well, I would say like we would run hoop. This is, might sound weird to some people or silly whatnot, but we would run hoop a lot with the with the basketball players. We we hung out with Diana and uh, Maria Conlon a bunch. Maria's from a town you know near me in, in Connecticut. We, we loved kicking it with them and just they were super competitive so we were kind of you know cut from the same cloth in a way they're up there all the the, the basketball girls are up there the boys we didn't um, have a ton of inter- at least I didn't have a ton of interaction with them a bunch of the football guys obviously would be up there but I would probably say some of the girls basketball players because I'm not like scared to say this but like they were bar setters too like they set the standard for athletics here at Absolutely. UConn as well um, and so we, you know, we had, at least I admired them and appreciated them for their, their commitment to excellence and their ability to win and whatnot. It was encouraging. I would never tell them that to their face. <laughs> Certainly not back then. But uh, I would say, like, the athletes, especially the basketball players that were able to, you know, win championships were were some of my favorites. Very diplomatic, not naming any names. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. Great, Julie, and I just want to quickly say that uh, Social Media Day may become an annual event at UConn. It was organized by Emily Zangari in our office, who's uh, in charge of the university's institutional social media. It was a huge undertaking, so I think that she's just decompressing from that right now. I'm sure she is. It was a very action-packed day. Before planning next year's event, but it was successful, and I was moderating, again, facilitator of sorts, the faculty staff talks, and faculty members actually told me they they were hoping it would be an annual thing because some of their colleagues had wanted to go, but the schedule didn't work out for them, so uh, stay tuned. Ken, you wanted to throw in something. Well, as Julie knows, Dan is an ESPN broadcaster now. He told me that's what he wanted to do before he got to UConn, because before I got to UConn, I was writing for the New York Times in Connecticut, and I did a story about why he decided to become really the first major football player in the state of Connecticut Mm -hmm. to decide to stay home and play for UConn. And I talked with him, his father, his high school coach, and that was his goal. He wanted to play professional football and then go into the broadcast booth. Living the dream. He's done it. Pretty cool. He was a very, very nice guy. UConn can help you live your dreams, folks. We have used that in some PSAs in the past, and it's true. It is true. No, it is it's true. real. My dream was to one day do a university podcast, and here oh I am. Oh, my gosh. Look at that. <laughs> Speaking of dreams, Ken, what dreams are you going to make come true for us this week? <laughs> well, 
Well, we're going to go back in time. History professor Kate Grangine is the Frederick Burkhart Residential Fellow at the Yukon Humanities Institute this year. She's originally from Connecticut, but she's working on her fellowship project titled In the Kingdom of Devils, The Harp Murders and the Legacies of the American Revolution. Uh, the project is about the violent legacies of the American Revolution following the war and the effects on brothers uh, Makaija and Willie Harp, who are two of the most notorious killers in American history at a time right after the nation was formed. The Harps committed dozens of murders in the 1790s in Tennessee, Kentucky, Illinois, and Mississippi, but they didn't kill for money or for possessions. They uh, appeared to be striking back against the United States because they were siding with the British loyalists during the American Revolution. They killed men, women, and children pretty much randomly. Professor Grangine is an associate professor of history at Wellesley College, but she decided to come to stores for her research because of our history department, because of our many specialists in early American American history, including Christopher Clark, Cornelia Dayton, and Professor Emeritus Richard Brown, and our research facilities in the libraries here. So she came home, and she's working on her book. How did you come upon this? I teach a class on violence in early America. I assigned my students a sort of overview reading of violent episodes to get them thinking about what they might want to research. And the Harp murders were mentioned in a couple of sentences. They were described as maybe the frontier killers of Kentucky, 30 murders or so. I immediately thought, why don't I know this story? And how come nobody's written about it recently? I just was sort of immediately pulled down the rabbit hole. I was intrigued and hooked from that moment. But you also describe this as a perennial theme in American life, that today yeah. uh, a lot is written about the nature of violence in this country. It seems like you're pointing way back mm -hmm. that this is historic here. This is a problem that has plagued us for a long time. America's a violent society. There are all kinds of theories about why that's the case, but it is the case. I think we also particularly have a problem with young, especially white, disaffected men who go on these violent rampages. The story I'm telling has some similarities to a modern mass shooter. And so one of the things that I'm trying to do is really explore this as a problem that dates to America's earliest days. I think most people think about that dating from the Civil War because of the leftover feelings with the people who served in the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. But you're going back really to the founding of, of the Republic right. um, with two guys who sided with, with right. the British, not the Americans. Right. That is part of their story. They were loyalists, so they were on the losing side, essentially, of the revolution. We just don't know enough about the aftermath of the American Revolution. It's not a war that we think of as having been particularly brutal, but there was much of it that was truly sort of horrific guerrilla civil warfare, especially in the South. These two brothers speak to that story. One of the other things the American Revolution does is it says to men in particular, we're going to give you the right to pursue happiness. You are entitled to life and liberty and the American dream. And that's kind of a new thing, frankly, for men of, you know, particularly sort of lower status to be able to think they're entitled to that. Very quickly, people start to run up against their inability to fulfill those dreams. 
and that is a kind of engine of real anger. You're interested in the, the range of resources that mm-hmm. are here at the Humanities Institute and at UConn. And I saw that you mentioned, at least in a couple of places, specifically uh, psychology, criminology, yeah. to try and, I guess, understand right. how this began and provide some historical perspective. I'm trying to think outside the box a little bit. Of course, I'm looking at newspapers and court records and all of the traditional kinds of historical documents you might look for in this kind of project. But I have also really been trying to sort of think about why do people commit murder? What makes men violent? What is the psychology of that? What's the sociology of that? Criminology and psychology have contributed, I think, to my thinking about these two murderers. They didn't leave behind diaries. They did not leave behind letters. I'm not even sure they're really literate. I've had to think about what is the human psychology of this kind of behavior. And they really are, I think, rampage killers. This is something we see in American history from time to time, but they're sort of an origin point in a way of thinking about why do people go on these sort of murderous rampages. What is it that causes them to be described as so-called serial killers? That category has only even existed since about the 1970s. So nobody's calling them that in the 1790s. (laughs) But people do call them that today. And it's because they commit a series of murders over time, and that fits in some ways the modern FBI definition of what serial killing is. More than three or four victims separated by cooling off periods. To my mind, they don't really fit a lot of the other behavioral characteristics that serial killers often have. There's nothing kind of perversely sexual about any of the murders. They don't seem to be driven by the same type of motivations that are typical of modern serial killers. I think they are better understood as spree killers or rampage killers. They don't end together, as you might think, given the way that they're described. Well, you know, we're talking about a period when criminal justice and law enforcement are pretty rickety and primitive. When they're committing murders in Kentucky, it's really just the county sheriff, maybe a couple of constables. Sometimes local people will round up a posse of just ordinary men to try to pursue them. That didn't work very well. There is a moment when they're in western Kentucky and one of the survivors of their violence is able to round up a posse of men and track them down. And Makaijah, who is the the sort of brawnier, bigger, muscular brother, was essentially lynched. He's really tracked down, shot, beheaded, and it's in an act of really retributive vengeance. Willie, though, escaped and disappeared. And so one of the great mysteries about this story is what happened to Willie. Willie vanishes from Appalachia, never seen again. But two or three years later, the federal government starts to suspect that this river pirate in the Mississippi borderlands may in fact be Willie Hart. And it starts to sort of gather momentum that this person who's involved in committing them might be Willie. And eventually, to make sort of a long, complicated story short, the Spanish and American governments collaborate to capture him, and he's executed. 
we can't know for sure ever, I don't think, whether or not it's truly Willie Harp, but several people who knew him in Tennessee and then met him again in Mississippi said, oh yeah, that's Willie. What is your goal for being here in stores? I'm trying to write as much as I can. This is a book that I hope will be a kind of crossover book that really speaks to the general public, that general readers can read. People like my father can read who are just sort of interested readers. I'm working on narrating the story as appealingly and as engagingly as I can. But I'm also sort of filling in blanks of research. One of the things that's been difficult about it is figuring out what's fact and what's folklore. Uh, Because, as you can imagine, these two were pretty famous and well-known in the immediate aftermath of these murders. I mean, in the 19th century, they were became kind of folk, I don't want to say heroes, but folk celebrities, maybe. Herman Melville mentions them in one of his novels, calls them thugs. William Faulkner mentions the harps in pieces of his writing. It's been hard in some way to sort of separate out who really were they in 1798 versus what has been said around firesides and hearths in the decades afterwards. Historians rely on documents and testimonials. So this is a really hard challenge because there was really not much officially documented on these these guys. Yeah, Uh, it's true. Why did you pick such a tough subject? <laughs> oh, gee, that's a question I've asked myself many times since since beginning this project. I'm realizing and, and have been realizing for a long time now, this is a high bar of difficulty because there isn't the, the sort of rich trove of materials that you would hope to have. Gosh, it's just such an incredible story. I couldn't resist it as a narrator. But also, I think it it really does speak to a lot of the problems we're still grappling with in this country, trying to understand what sort of are the wages of freedom. Does being free and having liberty mean we also have to accept this kind of level of violence that we've always lived with to some extent or another? It seemed to me to have great potential, both as a great tale and something that would speak to modern readers. Professor Grandjean again mentions the uh, resources that we have here on campus, the Dodd Center, the Babbage Library, a lot of the specialists in very different parts of United States history and world history are here. And that's why we constantly get calls from the media to have them speak about those topics. In fact, our library recently linked up with the Connecticut Digital Archive. You can find more about that on the UConn Library website and their social media accounts. But it's really neat. It gives uh, students, faculty, everyone here access to incredible digitized resources from around the state of Connecticut. And I've just been kind of of looking through some of that this weekend. It's a lot of fun. So yes, we do have great resources here. Speaking of great resources, you know Tom's a great resource. Tom is a great resource for Tom's History Corner because this involves personal experience. Ooh. This is in a Wikipedia article. This will be flagged. Book of Tom. We're gonna open the book of Tom. Uh, Actually, we're gonna open the Red Brick in the Land of Steady Habits by Bruce Stave. But uh, this is about an episode in which I was a participant. We're gonna travel. We're gonna travel back in time. This is the uh, the year of 1999. Okay. Um, we're gonna get the straight story. We're gonna get the straight story. No, no spin. Cast your minds back. Bill Clinton was president. Um, uh, Backstreet Boys riding high in the charts. Uh, young Chris Tucker taught us how to laugh. I don't really remember. <laughs> But anyway, it was 1999. I was a student here, and there was a, a growing movement on college campuses around the country focused on the manufacture of university-branded apparel. The first big success of this was at Duke University in 1997, and the movement became known as Students Against Sweatshop because the concern was that 
the clothing, the apparel being made with university logos was being made in factories in other countries with unfair and unsafe labor conditions. Mm -hmm. So students were pushing for their universities to join groups like the Workers' Rights Consortium, which involved monitoring of these factories and signing on to sort of uh, fair labor practice standards. So in the spring of 1999, this movement came to UConn courtesy of a class taught by Professor Robert Leister, who was in the philosophy department, who was an amazing teacher. I took like five classes with him. <laughs> I minored in Bob Leister. Um, and this was a class, I was a senior. No, wait, I was a junior. How old am I? Uh, <laughs> well, anyway. did you graduate? You graduated in, in 2000. 2000. This explains a lot. So this you were a junior. This explains a lot. This was the spring. So the, the point of this class was to actually do activism, to like put together an activist project. Wow. And the members of the class decided that we would try to get UConn to sign on to the Workers' Rights Consortium. So... <laughs> This was a great experience with sort of uh, the good and the bad of student activism. The good was people were really kind of committed to making some improvements and also to seeing the university in a, in a broader context, not just issues that affected UConn, but the way UConn affected the wider world. The bad side was that some people were kind of acting out their fantasies of activism. Mm, boy. So I was constantly outvoted on tactics. And eventually at one point, uh, Bob Leister came to me and said, the other students think you're a mole for the administration. <laughs> I was not. So you were you were being reasonable. I'm guessing. I was. I was trying to. Be, I was trying try not to like break stuff. I was trying to get a meeting with the administration to talk about our demands, and they wanted to have a sit-in before we did anything. So they wanted us to occupy Gully Hall. Clearly, they were not aware of activist history and procedure. No, no, no. So they just wanted to to make noise. They kind of want. Yeah. So there was a, a vote was taken to occupy Gully Hall on a certain Monday, right? And so I was like, okay, fine. You know, because I was just all going along with it. You had to go it. with it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. However. Um, <laughs> I got a call from the only other person in the class who was also kind of reasonable, a guy named Andy. I don't know what happened to him. Perhaps he's in politics. Someone had showed up the Monday before the Monday. One person from our had got the dates mixed up. Oh, God. And so this guy walked into the president's office in Gully Hall. And this is like pre-9-11, so you could just like walk anywhere. He just walked in and sat down and, and the receptionist said, can I help you? And he said, I'm here for the occupation. <laughs> And she said, okay. And uh, so he just kind of sat there for a while. And she said, is anyone else coming? And he said, I think they're coming. Oh, There's boy. like no cell phones at this point either. So there was no way to text people. And so eventually he uh, he got up and left. Oh, that's sad. Poor guy. <laughs> and, uh, and President Phil Austin, who was the president of the university at the time, heard about this later and then contacted, I guess, Bob Leister and said, can we just sit down and talk about this? Right. So we had a meeting at Hilltop in um, April. And we sat down with Phil Austin, who was very reasonable and listened to all our concerns. There was some acting out. It was a rainy day, and one of the students accused Phil Austin of deliberately choosing a day that was rainy to depress student turnout. Oh, my gosh. Which I don't think he was, I don't think he'd done that. He didn't know what the weather was going to be. Phil Austin controlled the weather. That Did... was little known fact. So the, the real sit-in didn't happen because of that, No, the real right? sit-in didn't happen because so we, we got a meeting. With that the one kid may have been paid off by Tom Breen. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, in a, in a weird way, that one kid actually got us the meeting with Phil Austin. Yeah, because it worked out. prior to that, Phil wasn't aware that we were mad. Um, and then shortly thereafter, Phil released a statement to the Daily Campus saying that the university was going to join the Workers' Rights Consortium, was going to create a task force to monitor labor conditions, and starting May 1st, 2000, every manufacturer of Yukon Apparel had to disclose where its factories were. You know, ultimately, it actually led to important changes. And for a while, there was a section in the former co-op, now the bookstore, that was all uh Apparel made in certified non-sweatshop factories. Just like in almost every business school case study I've ever read, the moral of the story, kids, is start by talking to each other. Yes. Listen to Tom. Communication. Have a meeting. Yep. 
you might get somewhere. Then do your sit-in. Yeah. They knew you were going to be a you were going to work for the man one day. And I yeah, I mean I ended up working for the man. You do. How you about work that? for the man. So uh, that was a, a trip down memory lane for me. Well, that was cool. I like that. I don't have any stories like that. Well, uh, this has been uh, I think informative. We learned a lot this week. Mm-hmm. And we, there's more to learn. There's always more to learn here at UConn. One great way to suggest things you'd like to hear about is to get to us on Twitter. That's at UConn Podcast. You can also follow uh, at main underscore old, which is where I post old pictures and trivia and things like that. And uh, I think that's it for me. Keep an eye on the magazine, actually, because if you liked today's account of a failed sit-in, I'm working on an article about the history of student protests at UConn for the magazine. Sweet. That'll be fun. Julie, is there anything... You want people to know? No, just follow us and subscribe because we have a lot of good content coming your way in year two. I'm booking up all kinds of awesome guests, trying to broaden our scope a little bit because I know I've noticed we've been focused on certain areas of the university, so trying to get some more exposure to different types of people. So stay tuned for that. And I am on Twitter at Julie Bartuka. Ken? We're still broadcasting on WHUS on Fridays at 11 o'clock. We will probably take the summer off, I should tell you. By then, I should be back on the airwaves playing music, I think. We'll find out. And just to be clear, we're taking the radio off in the summer, but we'll still be right. podcasting. Yes. We're going to be podcasting all summer. You can't get rid of us. You can't stop us. Even if you wanted to. You can only hope to contain us. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next week.